Hi, I'm Diana. And I'm Susanna. And you're listening to Global Caveat, the podcast where we demystify global health. On today's episode, we'll be exploring diet culture, athletics, and influences of social media with guest Tracy Carson, an epidemiologist and doctoral student at the University of Michigan, studying physiology with female athletes. Hi, Tracy. Before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, what drew you to public health and epidemiology, and your social media handles for people to reach out to you later? Yeah. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I would say what drew me to public health initially was learning about prevention um, and how we could prevent all of these, you know, bad health outcomes from happening and learning that as an undergraduate was just really mind blowing to me. Um, And so I took my first public health class and never really looked back. Um, Right now, I'm a second year doctoral candidate in epidemiology at the University of Michigan. Um, My research really focuses on what's called the female athlete triad. So it's a a lovely mix of mental health and women's health. And I'm really interested in eating disorders as a risk factor for um, the female athlete triad and other women's health related outcomes. I am pretty active on Instagram. Um, You can search me just Tracy Carson, Tracy with an I. And then I'm also on Twitter. Twitter, it's just Tracy underscore Carson. Um, So you can follow me there if you're interested. So it's the new year and a lot of people are making resolutions and I, Diana and I were talking earlier about how the gym is probably going to be packed around this time. And as someone who studies what you study, what are your thoughts on New Year's resolutions and diet, body image? You know, we can, this is very broad, but let's just start there. Yeah. So I personally am not one that's big on New Year's resolutions. I never have been, but I think kind of broadly they can totally be okay if you're working towards goals that are healthy for you and healthy for your life and going to encourage personal growth in ways that are good for your mind, body, and soul. I think the diet industry and diet culture has really taken over this kind of new year, new me mentality. And um, a lot of people then seek out New Year's resolutions that are related to their body size, body weight, body image. And unfortunately, we know the diet industry just really doesn't care about our health and wellness. And a lot of these fad diets that are promoted around this time of year and physical activity that's promoted around this time of year is not based in science or research. It's based in an industry that's trying to profit off of um, our personal insecurities and our Western um, beauty image ideals. And so that can create a lot of issues for our physical and mental well-being during this time of year and create a lot of just unrealistic expectations that then can only result in quote-unquote failure of these resolutions. And so I really encourage people around this time of year to kind of question these diet trends that are being promoted and really check in with our bodies and figure out what is really right for us and kind of let that diet talk, diet mentality kind of just pass us by. So you talked about um, people just kind of listening to their body, knowing what they need. For me, when I hear that, I totally agree with that, right? I mean, in my past, I have definitely have had resolutions related to my body image and my weight and exercise. And this year, I made a point not to, specifically because I think I did see on your stories, Tracy, that you said something about along the lines what you just talked about. But... I guess for our listeners who may have these resolutions on their list right now or are thinking about, you know, this new year, new me, working on my way, working to be healthy, how do we distinguish between what is actually healthy for us versus what's just brand marketing that's targeting our insecurities? 
Yeah, so I think that really comes back to just really checking in with ourselves. So diet culture and the diet industry um, and the fitness industry really encourages us to deny ourselves of our physical instincts and intuition. So denying cravings, denying the desire to rest and recover, denying specific foods and food groups under this guise that that is the promise of a healthier lifestyle. But that's not always the case. And so I think it really comes back to checking in with ourselves. And um, figuring out if today do I just need to take a rest day? Is my body and mind telling me that I'm going to benefit from this extra hour of sleep and not feeling guilty about it? So it's really kind of being okay with resting and being okay with eating foods that may not be quote unquote healthy and knowing that tomorrow those decisions can change. And so I think I would like to see a lot of us removing judgment from some of our decisions around food and body. And then going off of the whole aspect of how social media plays into this and how diet culture plays a big part of how fitness influencers act on Instagram and on Pinterest or wherever and is part of a lot of this cleansing type of culture to obtain some specific kind of physique. So there is this heavy impact of what Western culture deems to be a certain beauty standard and Hollywood and just like that specific type of body type. I think we all know what I'm talking about. And that has made this massive wave across the entire world, really, especially in Asian cultures, where you see not just this whole skin bleaching or lightening, but also increased amounts of plastic surgery to get the specific body type and also increases of eating disorders like bulimia and anorexia to try to maintain this type of body that is really just stemming from Hollywood and how there is that claim of what that is what beauty is. So what do you think of the impact of the Western culture specifically and these ideals on the rest of the world and how social media is really helping to increase that and making that spread and like how these body types that are being idolized are really more based on genetics, not on body modification or diet modification and how social media seems to be playing into all of this and making it seem like it's a lot easier and more possible to make that kind of body a reality. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of these unrealistic body image standards um, then contributing to either restrictive eating or kind of over-exercise behaviors. I think that's definitely something that kind of our generation has seen growing up and we see it in social media all over the place. And what is most problematic, in my opinion, that comes from that type of culture, especially in the media, is promotion of really restrictive diets that don't take into account the amount of fuel that our body really needs to function at a high level. And and you pointed out the genetic component. Not every body is going to be um, like some of the bodies that we see on TV and on Instagram every day. So it's working towards body peace and body acceptance and knowing that our bodies may not look like those that we see reflected in the media and that's okay but society needs to really work on promoting that message and I think that we have unfortunately a ways to go in regards to that. So I want to play devil's advocate a little bit Yeah. and you know we're all working in public health so for us we work in prevention intervention like you said earlier and I think when we start talking about body weight there's so many different opinions that people have. Yeah. On the one end we have this movement towards positive body image, you know, mind, body, like all that wellness, everything that you're talking about, which is really great. And then we have this flip side where people are like, well, you're just promoting people to eat whatever they want, whenever they want, mm. but that can be so unhealthy. So what's what would be your response to that? Yeah, that's really tough. And people ask me that quite a bit. I think... Um... <sighs> 
It's tough, especially in the public health space, because so much of our efforts go towards preventing weight gain and preventing obesity and promoting healthy lifestyles. But there's also the psychological component that often goes kind of unacknowledged. And so it's letting yourself partake in foods that you enjoy and partake in rest and things like that, that really aren't for everybody. That's not a bad choice. And so it's also realizing that we need to rely on things like biomarkers to really test the true effect of maybe be our physical activity and or food intake. And so, and we know from research that body weight does not always signify good or bad health or in terms of biomarkers and health outcomes. And so it's keeping in mind that we can never look at someone's body shape or size and assume that they are not a healthy individual. I think that's, that's kind of where I lie right now in that debate of kind of health at every size and promoting, also promoting physical activity and eating healthy foods. So it's definitely a tough debate that a lot, a lot of more work needs to be done so that kind of us as the public can understand where that lies. Okay, so in response to that, then let's say we have someone who has a very high BMI score. They're obese and they say, you know what, I'm actually healthy. Like I don't have really a family history of any chronic diseases. I don't have any chronic diseases right now. Like I'm I'm just fat, like, but I'm not, I'm not like sick or anything, right? And obviously there's that social aspect of this person being judged and people tend to think that bigger people are lazier, that they're not as intelligent. Now for us working in public health, I think about, okay, let's say this person goes into the doctor's office and in medicine, we are always told or, you know, the population is always told by medicine that the heavier you get, the more at risk you are for things like heart disease. So if I go into the doctors or this person goes into the doctors and they're just a very large person and they go in because they have a cold, for you working in diet and nutrition, like what are your thoughts on that in terms of how uh, the medical culture perceives it and how, um, you know, we may say body positivity, blah, 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 but then we also have this very real concern about from the medical community about, well, the bigger you get, the more at risk you are for X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I think that's where um, kind of our society's weight bias really comes into play within the medical community as well as society at large. And so again, I really would suggest looking back at those biomarkers, looking at those true markers of health and really detaching body weight and size from what we perceive to be health. So going back to the data, the numbers, um, instead of some perception of health that we assume based on appearance only or a number on the scale only. Can you talk a little bit more about the biomarkers and how that works? Yeah, so just typical blood tests. So we can take a patient's blood and we can look at their cholesterol levels. We can look at glucose levels, checking for things like checking their blood pressure for hypertension. Those are all signs. Those are all risk factors for other health outcomes that are often ascribed to obesity. However, if we break down what obesity really is, it's looking at those other measures. So obesity is simply numeric measure. It's a ratio of weight and height. But when we break it down, what does that really mean? We need to look kind of underneath the surface to really see what is going on with an individual's health. I just think it's very interesting because recently I've been hearing a lot where people have been questioning if we should be using obesity or not or if it's um, appropriate because so much stigma is now attached and from negative and misuse of the word and I genuinely don't know how to react to that and how to potentially deal with that as an issue since there is this health aspect to it because 
because as you were mentioning earlier, a certain weight, at a certain weight, it's like different health outcomes. And then there's also how the general public has just changed the way the word has been used and also the growing body positivity trend and everything. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's really, it's really interesting because BMI itself is, is that simple ratio. And we can't, when we in public health are talking about interventions that are aiming to change BMI and decrease BMI, we're really talking about interventions that are aiming to change weight because height's not really modifiable. So when we're talking about changing BMI, we're still really talking about changing weight. And so at the end of the day, I think that's an issue in and of itself with within kind of using BMI as a measure. But also knowing that BMI really can be pretty faulty in specific populations, particularly young active individuals. So anyone with any kind of muscle mass, really. And then in older adults, too, where their bone mass may be lower. So we're we're not truly taking into account differences in body frame size, bone density, things like that. And so BMI, I think, has a lot of work to go. But all that being said, I'm not an obesity researcher. Researcher. So really not not as um, attuned to all of that as, as somebody else might be. I think someone did tell me once that The Rock would technically be considered very obese. Absolutely. Cause yeah, because of, of muscle. muscle mass. Yeah, so it, it doesn't take yeah. into account any of those really important body factors. Hmm. Okay, so going back more towards what you work with, from a public health perspective, do you think that there's a way that we can change the way that this dialogue works around athletics and the intensive culture surrounding all of that and do you think it's more on like the industry side that we can have this quote-unquote fix or if it's more on the individual athlete side or what do you think like how do we even begin that type of conversation or how do we address that yeah that's a really tough question I think unfortunately it's going to take a long time for the industry side to catch up with the research side and the health side and I don't know that I I definitely do not have an answer (laughs) as to how to do that but we really need to work closely we need like the industry to work closely with researchers with clinicians with kinesiologists and um, people with a very clear understanding of physiology to really just put the athlete's best interest at heart because until we reach that point where money isn't the motivation and power is not the motivation the athletes will typically unfortunately suffer so can you tell us a little bit more about what your specific interest is? I know that you're doing something with female athletes and eating disorders. Absolutely. Um, so my my doctoral work is focusing on female distance runners. Um, and so I'm interested, again, in the female athlete triad, and that contains three components. The first being disordered eating or restrictive eating. The second being a loss of the menstrual cycle. We call that amenorrhea. And then finally, decreasing bone density due to overexercise and undernutrition nutrition. So that results in early onset osteoporosis, which is really significant because bone density does not grow back, quote unquote. So you can be young 20-year-old woman with essentially the bone density of a 60-year-old woman. And that puts you, of course, at, at risk of bone fracture and bone injury the rest of your life. And aren't women in general more at risk for things like osteoporosis or arthritis? Am I wrong about that? Um, I can I can only speak to osteoporosis, but yes, okay. absolutely because of menopause and changes in our hormone production at midlife. So it's really kind of that post-midlife period where women are seen to be at risk of bone injury, but in these athletes, we're seeing it happening really, really early in life. I think what you're doing is super fascinating because while I did not ever go into collegiate level 
full competitive sport, I did do long distance cross country running for like five years, as well as running marathons. And this was in those developmental years in like junior high and high school. And actually I recently had to stop running because I tore my plantar plate a few months ago. And when I went to get x-rays and I looked at them, I was like, wow, uh, what the heck? Those feet look like they belong to someone much older than me. Like you could see the deterioration in my bone and my joints. Yeah. So just seeing that from only having been a competitive distance runner for a short time of like five years and then taking time off and trying to come back, which clearly didn't work out well. But it's interesting that you're getting to do this research because I never really knew the damages that could be done and the things and like these things when I was younger and you're putting that information and research out there and these people that are running like this and the coaches and everyone can actually see what they're doing and how it's impacting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my my research as planned <laughs> so far for my dissertation focuses on college athletes, but um, really we want this information available to athletes as young as possible, right? So in this um, prevention kind of focused aspect of public health that we live in, hoping to reach women as young as possible <laughs> to prevent these outcomes. So what would an intervention look like for prevention on something like that? So, like you said, if there have a lot of long-distance runners that are female athletes that are having a lot of yeah. wearing down of their bones, um, I mean, so far from our conversation, I can gather that it's really complex, right? It's genetics, it's nutrition, Yeah. it's a, like if you're super active, I'm guessing you probably need to eat more. Right. So, I don't know, like, I'm, I guess for me, I'm a little confused on and what kind of interventions would be useful or um, sure. I, I honestly have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, it really starts with education in terms of adequate fueling. So adequate calorie intake. Um, a lot of athletes do struggle with hunger cues and not having a lot of hunger cues when they're training so heavily because sport and exercise does interfere with our hunger and satiety cues. So it might not be that an athlete is choosing to restrict calorie intake, but it might just be the nature of their um, training and how their body reacts to training. So the first thing would be having adequate fueling information and making sure that you're taking in enough calories to support all your physiological processes. And then where I really see a big opportunity for intervention is when an athlete first misses her menstrual period. A lot of the time that is um, seen as completely acceptable and appropriate due to high high training and volume of training. But that is a huge, huge sign that your body is not functioning as it should and is not functioning efficiently. And losing a period is a precursor to the later bone issues that we see. So I see interventions really taking place in a clinical setting or in terms of just making sure that coaches, athletes, trainers are all aware that if an athlete is missing her period, she really needs to go talk to a nutritionist, go talk to her doctor and figure out how to get the period back as soon as possible. And that's that's really where I see a lot of opportunity for growth within female athletics. That's really interesting you say that because I remember, I mean, as early as middle school, like sixth grade, seventh grade, a lot of my friends who were on soccer teams, I had, you know, a few of them say, yeah, I haven't been, had my period for like six months to a year. 
Yeah. And for me, I'm like, oh, you're so lucky because I hate getting my period. You know, for them, they're like, yeah, it's normal. My, like my coach or like whoever said that, it's because I'm exercising a lot. So it's just, it's fine. Yeah, there's a lot, there, we have a lot of work to do in our society as well in terms of kind of accepting the menstrual period and the female reproductive process um, as something that we need to be proud of and um, get excited about every month. I know it's not very fun, but um, in, <laughs> it's our greatest marker of a functioning body for women. So yeah, I'm a huge advocate for menstrual health and kind of normalizing menstruation because we have to. True. Period is power. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one last thought. I know we've drifted around quite a bit in the convo, but touching back on New Year's resolutions, I recently read a survey from 2018 that stated that 45% of people made weight loss their New Year's resolution, and I imagine that the number for 2019 is pretty similar. Mm. So for those people that are just really set on making that their goal, what would you say to them about doing that in a healthy way or some type of tip or advice or something that you'd say or give to them? I would say don't focus on weight loss at all because (sighs) this might come off, I hope it doesn't come off too harsh, but any type of body insecurities are always stemming from something else. So I would say really sit down and focus on what, what other aspects of your life are you wanting to work on, wanting to change? Because I bet if you work towards those goals, you're going to feel better about your body and more secure in yourself as a whole. So I wouldn't suggest any type of kind of goals related to weight loss. Again, really focusing on what other areas um, can you work on to make yourself happier this year. And I think that goes for yeah. both men and women. Right? Oh, absolutely. Oh, across the board. It works for everybody. Any, any and all gender identities. Yep. We can all relate to that, I think. What about the opposite? What if you're a person who wants to gain a ton of muscle mass um, and you just want to get turn into like this you know, super muscular cloud. Because I think that can be really unhealthy too. Oh, absolutely. Um, But if that's on someone's resolution, what would be your advice for that? I would give them that same exact advice. What about, what about your life do you want to change? Because it's stemming from something else. So eating, yeah, I mean, even um, eating disorders work both ways. And so again, why do you want to change your body? What else in your life can you change um, that may be healthier and more productive for you in the long run and really result in true happiness? I know that's tough for some people to swallow, but um, I really hope that that message resonates with some. That's a great great message. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for talking with us, Tracy. Thank you guys so much. Well, I definitely have a lot of work to do on this topic, and so hopefully in the future I'll have more to share, too. (laughs) Definitely looking forward to the work that you're doing. Awesome. Thank you, guys. And that's the episode. Thank you, Tracy, for joining us. As a reminder, you can find her on Instagram at Tracy, T-R-A-C-I underscore Carson, C-A-R-S-O-N. And please subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Your support helps us grow. You can also support us by becoming a member of our Patreon page. Susanna and I spend a lot of time making sure our information is correct, but there are only two of us, so if you catch something, please let us know. Feel free to reach out to either of us by emailing globalcaveat at gmail.com or to either of us on Instagram at cladalist and at sujani. And a special thanks to all the people that have to listen to us brainstorm and to Cordell Glass for producing our music.